Hello and welcome to episode 67, 37 of That 60s Recording Podcast. That's where I got the 60s from. The podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. And this week I have part two of my conversation with Steve Jackson of Poltech. Um, lots of great feedback about the first episode. I'm glad you're all really enjoying this. Steve is such a lovely guy. <laughs> um, I always say it, as is everybody who I speak to, but it was such a pleasure to speak with him. Um, so I hope you enjoy the remainder of this conversation. And uh, we begin by digging into how he scaled up production, if you could call it scaling up, uh, from sort of building one obviously one unit at a time to building enough units to make uh, commercial production viable. Um, just before we get on with that, I'll tell you that my stems that I'm sending out on my mailing list this week are What Goes On, the uh, Ringo number from Rubber Soul, which was actually incredibly difficult to play. Uh, and not least because it's been absolutely <laughs> roasting in the UK this week. I've been The studio is... Generally quite warm, uh, I mean insulated, so it stays kind of cool-ish, but I mean I was sweating buckets by the end of doing this, so yeah, ridiculous. But I hope you enjoy that, you can get that by signing up to my mailing list at allyouneedisdrums.com. And uh, one uh, reminder before we go into the episode, that if you'd like to support this podcast by buying one of my enamel mugs, you can do that on my website too. It's allyouneedisdrums.com and then there's a link to the shop there. So anyway, let's get straight into this episode with Steve Jackson part two. Here we go. Going back to, to sort of before, um, to, to sort of the moment where you, you've got this unit that's working now, what were the challenges in terms of, um, from your maybe personal perspective, having to then learn about manufacturing on a larger scale and all that kind of thing? How did you approach that? Well, um, so like I said, I worked for Hewlett Packard for 25 years. And one of the things that HP has always done is uh, I was in research and development, but HP always had a very close alliance between R&D and manufacturing. And you didn't just design something and then throw it over the wall and say, okay, you guys go make this and you know I'll start my new design project. Um, you, you followed it into production and you know worked on that. And so I had a lot of experience with supply chain management and um, you know um, working with manufacturers and suppliers, um, you know, with quality control, with um, just manufacturing processes and making sure that um, that you know the process is stable and and reproducible. And one of the things that I'm very proud of with the Pultec uh, is that. Our tolerances, for example, for the for the transformers, but also for um, the capacitors, we have those custom manufactured, and and they're made old school. Um, you know, if you take a, a you know a three hundred and thirty nanofarad um, two hundred volt cap, like you know, is in in one of the stages of a Pultec, you can find that today in you know a tenth the size package, but it's not. It's not the same as that cap that they made back then. There were um, reliability issues with the dielectric that forced them to use 
thicker dielectric than what we would use now, you know, they have, they no longer have that defect density that requires the thicker dielectric. And so they've shrunk everything. And um, I, I didn't want to use the modern components. I wanted to use the same ones that he used. And so I found a company that would custom wind these caps um, to the original specs using the thicker dielectric and, and you know, reproducing that. Um, they're also wound to tighter tolerances. Back, back in Gene's day, you know, 20% was a pretty good um, value for, uh, for accuracy of the, uh, the capacitor. On critical caps, we go to 2%. You know, on most of the caps, we're at 5 or 10%, but on the critical ones, we go to 2%. And on the inductor, we're able to hold uh, much tighter tolerances than what the original inductors would, would maintain. And so, um, you know, when you're, when you're building a peak boost circuit that requires that inductor and that capacitor, um, you know, we nail it every time uh, because we're using higher precision components. And so we can build a unit, um, you know, maybe five years ago and have the customer come back and say, you know, I want to get a second unit and use it on uh, my stereo bus. And we're highly confident that we can build that unit to the exact same specs that their five-year-old unit has. And, um, you know, that's important to customers that, that, you don't see all this variability coming off the production line, um, you know, that, that it's very consistent. And so I think that's one of the things that I brought to Pultec that, that maybe wasn't there in the old days, just because they didn't have that option. Yeah. Uh, You've got the, I mean, you saw sort of the benefits of modern technology, but you're doing it. So you're, you're using, as, as you said, like the old school, old school components but they're manufactured in a modern way which which gives you if anything it's probably more uh, well significantly more accurate than than Poltex were were back in the 50s and 60s and and 70s presumably yeah. there must have been a lot of variation between how some of them sounded and um, depending on what was happening so actually i i think what uh, I, I mean the the product coming off the production line was uh, relatively consistent uh, in the old days, but what it required was for them to go do go through and do a lot of component matching. So you know you'd have to go through and uh, you know a, a box of a hundred capacitors and then bin them out and say, okay, here are these, and then here are these, and here are these, um, and you know that takes a lot of extra effort, a lot of resource labor, um, and that's something we don't have to do. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't know. That's one of the questions that I failed to ask Gene. Um, but I, you know, I'm just kind of speculating on that. Um, yeah. When, when you sort of went into manufacturing, the, the company relaunched, as it were, were you, what was the reaction of, of uh, sort of the audio world in general? Were you, was there skepticism about, um, you know, about what you tried to achieve or were people generally open and, and excited about what you'd done? Um, I, I guess I'd say both. There was tremendous speculation. Um, and if you uh, actually, if you watch that Alan Sides video uh, on our, uh, on our website, um, it's very representative of the reaction. Um, he, you know, when I approached him with, with a Pultec, 
um, he was very skeptical, you know, and he said, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead and send it to me. You know, we'll give it a listen. <laughs> and then, then I got the phone call back from him and he was like, wow, this, this sounds just like our pull tag. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there was a lot of that. There was a, uh, there was a shootout um, that um, Dave Collins and Greg Wells and, um, and Hunter Crowley and uh, I believe there was another person involved in it. It was out in L.A. Um, and and they had a, you know, a premium vintage Pultec. They had another manufacturer's Pultec knockoff and they had one of mine. And I think I think that was really what kind of launched things was after that shootout, uh, there was so much discussion on what was at that time named gear slots. Um, they, I believe they're now gear space. Um, and, uh, anyway, they, uh, there was so much discussion on that and, you know, Greg just was telling everybody he knew. And around that same time, Jack Douglas demoed a pair. And, um, you know, as, as we got the units into the hands of, of people that, you know, were recognized as having good ears and, and knew what a pull tech was supposed to sound like and got their reaction, then things really just took off it. Um, but it was, it was pretty much all word of mouth. You know, it was, it was a matter of getting it into the hands of a few people who, you know, had credibility. Um, and then other people would go, well, where can I demo? How can I demo one? And they would, you know, get one or get a pair and and then they'd refuse to give them back. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I don't, you know, I was demoing this, but now I don't want to give it back. How much does it, how much for me to keep it? So, (laughs) and so we'd have to build more to replace the demo units. And, um, are you uh, keen to restrict, uh, or do you, do you restrict the amount that you make as just to keep the quality consistent or, um, uh, presumably that's something that you you consider that you could you know obviously you you wouldn't but you could go in and do sort of mass manufacturing techniques but you're i suppose you're keen to keep it all in-house and and the quality as high as you possibly can and uh, and, and just keep all of that reputation intact um we actually started out um with external manufacturing um like i said i i built the first i built all the early prototypes um and then i i found a place locally um that was that that was one of the biggest challenges now that i think back on that that was a long time ago but i remember shopping this around to uh you know fort collins is a is in a fairly high-tech area it's it's about an hour north of uh, Denver, uh, along the front range of the Rocky Mountains, and um, you know we have multiple Hewlett Packard facilities. We have Intel. Um, we have you know a lot of high tech industry in this area, and so there are lots of places that do electronics assembly. But when I would shop, you know my my sample Pultec uh, around to these places. They would look at it and oh, that that's like all point to point wired. We we haven't done that in twenty years, <laughs> and 
I really started to get frustrated thinking, great, we've, we've got this thing ready to manufacture and I can't find anybody who can assemble it. And there's no way I can be, you know, working evenings and weekends building these things. So um, I happened to find a place, um, L&L Assemblies, um, that had done a lot of hand assembly like this. And um, the owner of the company um, said, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll bid it. And they came in with, you know, a, a reasonable number. And, and so they started building the prototypes at that point, you know, three or four or five. And um, then the early production units and, and uh, um, then the, the person who was actually doing the assembly for them ended up buying the company and so I started working with her and her husband and, and for a number of years, um, they, they built all the units. Um, you know, I, I would load them up with parts and, and, uh, they would provide finished units, kind of like what Gene was doing, in the, uh, <laughs> back in the day. Um, and then they reached a point where they wanted to retire and I thought, oh boy, here we go again. And fortunately, I was able to very quickly find another place that did contract assembly and worked with them for a while, uh, I guess about two, two and a half years. And then one of their people asked me if I'd ever thought about doing it in-house. And I had a space that I was leasing um, where we would do the inspection and the testing and um, you know, we warehouse all the, all the components and everything. And, um, I, you know, after a great deal of thought decided, um, to, to go that route. And so, um, we now have, um, like I said, we've got, um, three full-time people, um, and then a couple of part-time people. Um, one guy comes in and does inspection and test, you know, just part-time, but, um, we have multiple people doing full-time assembly. And so we've actually brought all the assembly in-house. And um, COVID last year, I thought, um, you know, March and April, I thought, oh boy, you know, the economy's going to tank. This is going to be the end of the company. This, you know, we had a good run, but, you know, this is going to be the end of it. Instead, I, I was stunned to see that orders started coming in more frequently and larger orders and, and realized that, wow, with all these, you know, studios closing their doors and people having to work from home, you know, a lot of these engineers and, and artists and so forth, uh, producers, they're all working out of their home studios. They've got to beef up their home studios. And we've actually had to hire, uh, we're, we're uh, in the process of hiring somebody else now because we can't keep up with the orders. Wow. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how long that'll last. You know, I always knock on wood and, and I'm thankful for, you know, the success that we've had, but I realize, you know, at any time the orders could stop coming <laughs> in, and, you know, you just don't take anything for granted. What do you think, uh, for the future of, of, of outboard gear, I mean, there seems to be a huge, uh, I mean, maybe resurgence is, is the wrong word, but there's a huge respect certainly for outboard gear at the moment. And there is for plugins too, but there seems to be a real healthy balance developing between the two of them. And I, I personally think that 
companies such as as Poltech, these you know legacy companies are, are gonna have got a healthy future ahead of them. But what what how do you see it? I I think the same. Um, you know, especially for something like a Poltech, it's it's a very unique product that um, you know Gene designed some magic into this box, and I was fortunately able to recreate that magic. Um, I, I never could have designed it from the ground up. Um, you know, I, I was able to reverse engineer it and I'm thankful to that, but I, I think that's something that once people have experienced it, um, they want it in all their recordings. Um, and so I think there will always be a demand for Pultex, um, you know, whether people are using them on the way in, you know, to track or using them, uh, you know, on their mix bus to add, you know, some extra life, um, you know, to their mixes if they're if they're mixing completely in the box. Um, and I think, you know, most most engineers, um, you know, especially if they're working in a home studio, they want that one or two things that you know that one premium mic or that one premium EQ, or that one premium compressor. Um, they can work with a lot of other stuff, you know, for the, the generic, but on their vocal, you know, on, on their guitar solo, whatever it is, you know, they want that one special box that, that gives them the magic that, that <laughs> just takes their mix over the top. Um, and so I'm hopeful that people will continue to, <laughs> to order Poltex. I'm, I'm interested in the way that you uh, have started to sort of develop into to the, the, to the future. And it seems to me that you've done it in a really sympathetic way. I mean, I'm particularly thinking about the mastering series that you've got um, with the stepped, um, the, the dials are stepped as opposed to uh-huh. just, uh, you know, just sort of, I don't know what the terminology is, but loose. And it, that seems to right. be a really ingenious and subtle difference between between units that makes that makes it suitable for a modern audience because people do want recallability and suddenly i just i think that's a really really brilliant way of embracing the future without compromising what you're doing too much and how have you approached sort of setting yourselves up for you know in terms of 500 series stuff and the mastering series range so the uh, the stepped controls, the mastering units, um, that was something that that sort of evolved a little bit. Um, you know, there, when I first got into the Pultec game, um, you know, obviously in 1998, 99, I knew very little about Pultec other than the studio that I'd worked at back in the in the late 70s um, had a couple of Pultecs, and and they sounded great. And I, I knew that I wanted, you know, one for my studio, but, um, obviously as, as I got into the game and I started talking to more and more engineers, people that had used them for 20, 30 years, I started learning a lot about how people use them. And one of the biggest, uh, frustrations that people had was in trying to find a pair of pull techs that were matched to each other well enough to use on the mix bus. Um, and so it became very clear that, you know, that was, that was a, something I needed to take into account with these units. 
I needed to make sure that, you know, number 37 sounded just like 28 and 15, you know, that, um, you know, they, they weren't varying widely as we talked earlier mm -hmm. so that I needed to have a good control over, uh, the production, but then, um, the potentiometers were something that you can, you can find a pair of potent, you know, let's say we order, you know, a batch of 500, uh, eight high frequency boost pots. Um, they're going to vary, you know, they're, you know, at best plus or minus 10% tolerance on the absolute resistance. So you can go through and you can measure them and you can say, okay, well, here's one that's, you know, 9.98 K and here's another one that's 9.97 K. Those are, those are really close. But when you start looking at the taper, the taper is not necessarily uh, matched as closely as the absolute value of the element. Do you follow? The, I do. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so if I set, you know, even though their, their absolute value is the same, if I set one at 40% at rotation, and I set the other one at 40% rotation, they still might be mismatched a little bit. And I've got to sit there and either, you know, use my view meter or use my ears or whatever to try to try to match them. And I knew that that wasn't really going to be um, acceptable. And so um, that's when we came up with the, you know, the idea that we'll, you know, if we, if we use a 21 position switch and we use 1% precision, you know, metal film resistors, I mean, that, that was really nothing new that lots of people had done that with, with various products. And, and so it was obvious that we needed to apply that to the pull tech. Um, what, what I did that I think took it an, another step beyond was instead of just matching the original curves, um, when you only got 21 steps, um, you've either got to, um, if, if you make uniform step size, then, um, you know, you know, you know what your max boost and max cut are. You have to decide, do I want higher precision or do I want wider range? And so what we came up with was this, um, this varying, um, boost or, or cut. So there are half dB steps for the first 50% of rotation to give you that high precision and uh, obviously close tracking. So that's really important on a mix bus application where you don't want your stereo image moving. You want, if you're set at 4.5 on one and 4.5 on the other, you want them to be boosting exactly the same level. And so the left and right, you know, are are matched and the image stays in the center or where wherever you know your pan is set yeah. um but we had people saying well you know yeah that's great that you've got that high precision um you know on the early units we opted for half db steps all the way up and um sorry i got i got a little off of where i was <laughs> i'm enjoying um, listening to it it's great um on the early mastering units, we said, okay, they're half dB per step all the way up. That limited them to 10 dB booster cut. And so we had people that are, you know, buying this expensive product and they can use it on their mix bus. It gives them the precision, but hey, I kind of wanted to use this on my kick or on my snare or on my guitar. And I wanted that 20 dB of boost that I can get out of a conventional pull tech. 
you took that away from me. Now the most I can get is 10 dB. And so we went back to the drawing board and I came up with alternative tapers that give the half dB per step for the first 50% of rotation. And then we go to larger step size as you go past 50%. And so when you rotate fully clockwise, you're at the same max boost or max cut that a potted Pultec will give you. But on the low end, which is, I mean, you're honestly, you're never going to be boosting 20 dB on the mix bus. <laughs> if you are, there's something wrong with your mix. And so it kind of gave the best of both worlds. And people immediately, you know, people that bought those, we got instant feedback that, oh, this is perfect. I've got, I've got that precision, you know, for the, the one and a half to two dB that I want to tweak, you know, on my mix bus. But when I'm using them for tracking or mixing, you know, now I can use it you know, I can get, you know, the full, full 20 dB on my snare to really, you know, give it that crack that I want. That's, uh, yeah, I, I think that is incredibly clever. <laughs> I think it's a, it, it sounds like you're really listening to, to feedback and taking it on board and applying it in a, in a sensible way, which I think not, you know, not a lot of manufacturers do, do listen uh, so attentively. Um, how did you go about developing the 500 range? Because obviously, it, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, I, I'm a 500 user and um, uh -huh. it's it's almost a necessary evil these days. It's a, it's a you know, it's a condensed version of a unit and it's convenient and it's less, you know, it's not as expensive as, as buying a 19-inch rack unit all the time and, you know, it takes up less space. So it's something that, not all companies have done it, but you've you've embraced it. And how did you go about about uh, moving into that world? So the full story on that is maybe a little embarrassing, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, so I had kind of had tunnel vision. I you know I was desperately wanting to uh, to come up with a 500 series product. Obviously, you know 500 series are very popular. I the first real console that I worked on in a recording studio was an API 2488. It was a, um, this would have been about 1977 and it was a 1976 console. So it was like brand new yeah. and I love API. Uh, just, you know, my favorite console. And so I really wanted to have, you know, and, and that was, that was where the 500 series came from was from an API. Yes. Paul, uh, Paul Wolf created that. Um, the first um, uh, lunchbox and and really got you know the 500 series concept going um, and and I just somehow had tunnel vision I, I kept focusing on trying to make a you know how could I get a tube unit into a 500 series module and there are just all sorts of limitations you you know you've got to have a 300 volt supply and, and you've got to be able to deliver actually quite a bit of current from that supply. And, you know, there's, there's multiple transformers. There's, you know, obviously the input interstage and output transformer. And, um, you know, I, I just kept coming back to the fact that this is going to end up being like three units wide. And why would anybody ever, you know, burn three or maybe even four units to, this just doesn't make sense. <laughs> And even though we've been manufacturing the, uh, the solid state units for a couple of years by that point, 
it somehow hadn't occurred to me that, wait a minute, the, the solid state unit only has, you know, an input and output transformer. They're much smaller than the output transformer and the tube unit. You, you've got a single, you know, 2520 op amp. And so all of a sudden, you know, it was just, the answer was just sitting there right in front of me. It's like, okay, we'll do the solid state in a 500 module. And even that was, was challenging because we use, you know, the, the same input transformer, uh, input and output transformer that is used in the solid state rack mount unit. And they're pretty beefy transformers. That's one of the reasons they sound so good. Um, but, um, you know, I spent a few months working out the details. I had uh, my sheet metal guy that does all my CAD um, is, is just really brilliant. And he, he helped me tremendously in trying to figure out how to pack all this stuff into uh, the small volume that we had. Um, you know, we used the same brand of, of switch that's used in the full-size units. So we didn't cut corners on it at all. We made sure that everything that was in that rack mount unit, top quality potentiometers, um, top quality switches, you know, like I said, the same transformers and obviously the same API 2520 op amp and, uh, you know, managed to pack that all into uh, the EQP 500A was the first one. And then we did a 500S um, to emulate the uh, the uh, 1S3, 1S versions that have the high frequency shelf boost and some extra frequencies. Um, and then ultimately ended up consolidating that into the, the X, which kind of takes the A and the S and just merges them, takes the best um, uh, frequency selections from both. And um, so it gives you the 16K peak boost in addition to the 5K and 10K shelf boost. Uh, so it really gives you a lot of options on the top end. Um, and then, you know, the the Jack Douglas series, I, I've been talking to Jack about doing some sort of signature model, uh, uh, model um, with him. And he's the one that, that got me to do the MEQ-5 initially. <laughs> um, after he got a pair of the EQP-1A3s, um, you know, he he would call me up regularly and ask me, you know, when are you going to do the MEQ-5? When are you going to do the MEQ-5? <laughs> I'd never used an MEQ-5. I didn't really know, you know, much about it. Um, I'd seen pictures of it, but um, it certainly doesn't have the iconic status that an EQP-1A or 1A3 has. Um, and so, you know, one of the times that he asked me when I was going to do it, I said, so what, what's, you know, what are the benefits of that? What's the big deal about the MEQ-5? And he said, oh, it just happens to be my favorite guitar equalizer. He said, <laughs> you know, all of those um, Aerosmith records, you know, Alice Cooper, the guitars, all, almost all of them went through an MEQ-5. And, you know, whether it was bass guitar or six string or whatever. And uh, so anyway, we when we came out with the MEQ-5, and then ended up doing the solids. I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, the 500 series. Um, it was obvious that okay, the MEQ's got to have Jack's name on it. He was the driving force behind this. Um, what I didn't realize was I pretty much already filled the volume inside the 500 series module, and now I was going to try to add a bunch more components. <laughs> to it. 
So uh, yeah, that took probably another six months to figure out how to how to get that ten pounds of stuff into the five pound can. But um, people people seem to really love them. So um, and it's a great entry point. You know, people that that don't have the money to buy the full sized units, you know, can start with a five hundred series. And typically, what we find is that you know once once they get a taste of it then they somehow find, you know, the resources to get, you know, the full size unit and they don't stop using the 500 module. They use it in parallel with it. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a different vibe. It's a, it's a different animal. So, you know, it, it adds, you know, more colors to the sonic palette. Is that the same thing you see with, uh, with sort of plug-in version of things? So, um, you know, the UAD one and even waves has got a version I suppose they're, you know, incredibly accessible. And then once people have used a plugin, they're going to they want to hear the outboard version. And then they go for a 500 series and they, they that makes a huge difference. And then they, as you say, graduate <laughs> to the 19-inch rack version. But is, that, is your experience with the plugin version similar, that it just helps, helps introduce a new market to what you're doing? So, um, yeah, I, we used to get approached all the time at like AES and NAM. Remember back when we had trade shows, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, I'd have people come up to the booth and we always have a, a really well, uh, set up listening station. We have a, a pair of them, um, at trade shows with really good isolation headphones and high quality wave files, you know, for the samples and, and we've got, you know, our Pultex set up where, where you can listen to all the different models and, um, and the typical conversation, you know, somebody will come up and say, oh man, I, I love Pultex. I've been using their plugin for, you know, the last two years and I just, I use it on everything. I love it. And I'll respond with, oh, great. You know, uh, have you ever, have you ever listened to a a real Pultec? Well, no, no, I'd, I'd love to hear one. And they put the headphones on and you just watch their eyes get big and the smile grow on their face. And they're like, oh my gosh, I love the plugin, but this is just so much beyond. Um, now, um, just to make a little, I'm a little hesitant about going down this, this path, but just a comment. Um, there's only one company who actually worked with us and who licensed the Pultec brand, and that is Apogee. And in my opinion, I think they have absolutely hands down the best Pultec. I think it comes the closest to the, uh, you know, the physical Pultec um, of any of the plugins. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe since I last heard, you know, one of the UA plugins, they've gotten better, but um, we've, we've directed a lot of people to check out the Apogee Pultec plugin. And most of them come back to us and say, wow, you're right. It really is, you know, the, the best that I've heard. It, it does sound better than the others. So, um, but what we have seen is that people, people try the plugins, they get a taste for it then maybe they get a 500 module or maybe they go straight to, you know, the, the full size solid state or the tube units. But yeah, once, once they get a taste of the plug-in, then they want the real thing. And, um, you know, it's the nice thing about the plug-in is, you know, you can have six or eight of them 
where maybe you can't have, you know, six or eight EQP one A's. Um, we, we do have some clients that have six or eight EQP one A's, but, uh, but not everybody can do that. So. No. What's, um, do you have, you, you may not even want to talk about it, but do you have future ideas for, for things that are coming or are you happy, uh, you know, is your, have you filled your quota of things that you're putting out or are you going to keep pushing forward? Well, I've, I've been trying to resurrect the, uh, the MB1 mic pre. Um, it was an original Poltec product back in the day. Um, very popular back then. And, and people that have them now love them. Um, the input transformer for that is uh, a very challenging transformer to build. And, and it's taken us a while to, to get that done. We have uh, final protos on that and just need it need to get it into production and that will enable not only the the mic pre but also um there's a a compressor that uh a guy by the name of bob fine he owned fine recording studios in in new york city um they were a, a powerhouse back in the day and he took one of gene's original mic pre's the mb1 and added an opto loop to it to make an, an opto compressor out of it and I have those original design documents. It was never a Pultec product. In fact, I have a letter. Um, it's kind of sad. It was a, re I, I guess I'd call it a rejection letter. It was a letter to Gene Schenk, you know, asking him if he would be interested in producing it. And Gene basically responding saying, you know, at this time, we're not interested. Mm. Um, but there are maybe a dozen or, or so of these Bob Fine compressors out there in the world. And the people that have them just absolutely love them. Um, there are a couple of studios in New York um, that have a pair of them, and uh, they're incredible. And it, and that's a product that I would like to uh, to bring back into or bring into production for the first time. Um, I had thought, you know, with COVID, that I I'd be able to knock out some of these projects, but. Instead, you know, I've been overwhelmed with all the orders we've had and just trying to keep up with supply chain, you know, issues. And, you know, like everybody, um, suppliers are quoting longer lead times and, you know, difficulty getting their raw materials and that sort of thing. And so it's chewed up a lot more of my time than I would have liked. And um, so hopefully, you know, by the end of the year, I'll, I'll have both of those products into production. But um that's what I thought this time last year, and that didn't happen. So, <laughs> well, it's a it's a good position to be in. It's a it's yeah. you know, as as they say, it's a it's a sort of a nice problem to have. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, that does sound exciting. I'm, I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm excited to to try those out. That would be great. Um, so, our final two final two questions. Uh, do you have any? So I'm, I'm kind of specifically talking about the EQP1A. Do you have any specific settings or like think ways of using it that uh, that you would recommend, or any you know little tidbits of information like user guidance <laughs> um, that you would you would recommend, or are you purely manufacturing side of it? Um, you know, I wish I had a lot more experience with them than I do. My, as I mentioned, I the way I got into this was starting to build a home studio. And, um, you know, I just wanted a couple of pull to be able to use, uh, 
you know, in my, in my, you know, side gig of, of recording and Poltec has consumed pretty much all of my time so that I never get to go into my studio. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously I've, I've spent a bit of time in front of a Poltec and, um, you know, just, just let your ears be the guide is really the, um, and, and that's what I see most people doing, you know, at, at trade shows when they're demoing them is just, you know, turn the knobs until it sounds good to you. It's, it, it's pretty much impossible to get a horrible sound, you know, out of a Pultec. They're just, that's, that's one of the characteristics of them is that, um, you know, they're very forgiving and, you know, you can boost 10 or 12 or 18 or 20 DB and it doesn't get harsh. It just, you know, it, you know, it, it's just, uh, it's kind of a magical box. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess my advice is let your ears be your guide. And then finally, this is something I, I generally ask all the guests. So this, I mean, the story, the story of, of where you're at today is, is unbelievable. It's been, it's, it's incredible to hear it um, straight from you. And uh, if you had any advice for for anybody, uh, just sort of in, in not necessarily embarking on this because it's it's this is quite a unique story. But in terms of of what you've achieved by bringing back pulse techniques, what would advice would you either give yourself or could you could you impart uh, based on your experiences of of bringing the company to where it is today? I think, you know, follow your passion. It's what led me down this road. Um, I, you know, worked in the recording industry in the late seventies and, and early eighties. And then, you know, after getting married, my wife and I, you know, decided to go to college. I, uh, you know, put a lot of time into that, got, you know, my bachelor's and then ended up going on for a master's and PhD and, and worked in op optoelectronics and, and, uh, you know, VLSI, you know, high speed, uh, interfaces and that sort of thing. Again, you know, staying mostly in analog electronics, but I always knew that, you know, at some point I wanted to get back and be playing my drums and, and pushing faders. And, you know, even if it was just as a hobby, um, and so that, that's really, you know, that was my passion and that's, that's what I started following and it led me down this road. And, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate to be at the helm of a company like Pultec. Just, you know, it's a small, like I said, it's a small business, but you know, it, it's so iconic and it's, I still sometimes have to pinch myself and, <laughs> and say, how, how'd you end up here? <laughs> it sounds to me like you're, you, it's sort of, you're probably, um, you, you're probably sort of a, not want to agree with me necessarily, but I think that you're uniquely qualified to to do exactly this job. It, it seems to be that your experiences and your enthusiasm for it, and um, you know, seem to have culminated in in this being just exactly the right fit for you. I, I think so. I think it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, maybe you know, a little bit of obsession <laughs> <laughs> along with the passions. <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, it was, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you. And there we have it, Steve Jackson. 
I hope I get to meet him one day in person. Uh, he's so lovely, and uh, there seems to be a, a nice little audio community that uh, I'm sort of skirting on the edge of that I've seen, and of, of which Steve Jackson and Ivana Manley and all of those kind of guys are all uh, members of, and it seems really nice. They're all lovely. Um, so next week, my episode is with Bob Olson, who was the in-house mastering engineer at Motown, which I'm really excited about because I haven't featured Motown a huge amount on the podcast. So I think, uh, well, I say a huge amount at all. It's mainly been UK music, but we've touched on San Francisco. We've done a little bit on the Wrecking Crew. So I'm really excited to have someone from Motown speak with me. And as you'd expect, Bob is absolutely lovely. Uh, So it's a great, great couple of episodes coming your way. Uh, So that'll be next week. Uh, If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can do that. My email address is joe at allyouneedersdrums.com. You can visit my website. Uh, www.allyouneedisdrums.com I'm also on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums and that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my good friend Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the music and the artwork for this podcast and I will see you all next week goodbye goodbye